You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Hello, this is Dr. Penny Chris Etherton, President of the National Lipid Association. I'd like to welcome you to Lipid Luminations, hosted by Dr. Alan Brown and presented by the National Lipid Association. Our topic today on Lipid Luminations is personalizing diet approaches to cardiovascular health. And I'm thrilled that we have our guest, Dr. Penny Chris Etherton, Distinguished Professor of Nutrition in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the Penn State University, as well as the incoming president of the National Lipid Association. We're recording this interview at the National Lipid Association's 2011 Annual Scientific Sessions, which this year are held in New York City. Penny, thank you very much for taking time out of a very busy meeting to come and speak to us this morning. I'm delighted to be here, and as always, I love talking about healthy diets. Terrific. There's so much controversy about different diets, and patients are bombarded with everything from grapefruit to eating only Twinkies. So I'd really love it if you could tell our audience how to prescribed diet and do you prescribe different diets for different individuals? And, and let's start with a lipid lowering. How do you make a decision of what to counsel patients for hyperlipidemia? Well, I think there are two broad categories to consider. And I think first to know how important the healthcare professional is and patients place enormous trust in their advice. So what can doctors and other healthcare professionals do? Well, first, I think it's important to consider individual risk factors. And are we dealing with elevated LDL? Are we dealing with elevated triglycerides? What about high blood pressure as well? And also overweight and obesity, another important risk factor for heart disease. And then also consider patient's preferences. This is something that we don't always consider when we make just very sweeping diet recommendations. And it's so important because if a patient doesn't like a particular diet prescription, they're not going to follow it. I know that a lot of doctor's offices have a piece of paper that says, take this home and read it for lowering your LDL, or take this home, this is a high triglyceride diet, or here's a diet for hypertension. And what you're saying is you really need to sit down and spend a few minutes to figure out what they're willing to do. Is that correct? Absolutely. Find out what their patient preferences are. So can you kind of walk us through an example of how you might approach that in an individual patient? For elevated LDL cholesterol, the gold standard is the therapeutic lifestyle changes diet. And this is a diet, of course, it's going to reduce saturated fat and cholesterol, but also, you know, help the patient increase viscous fiber and then incorporate stanols and sterols in their diet. Then within the context of that, you know, there are a lot of different ways that a person can implement a diet. So, you know, they can do sort of a traditional USDA, mypyramid.gov type of approach, but also, there's a Mediterranean diet, vegetarian diets, and even the DASH diet that can be implemented as a TLC diet. So, you know, you really need to find out what your patients like and then work within the context of their preferences. Can you tell us a little bit within those contexts and trying to determine preferences of the patient? What would you prescribe differently in a patient with hypertriglyceridemia versus just elevated LDL cholesterol? Well, with hypertriglyceridemia, well, in addition to considering body weight, you know, you don't want a diet that's too high in carbohydrates. We know that carbohydrates, especially certain types of carbohydrates, promote triglyceride synthesis and that exacerbates the hypertriglyceridemia. So you'd want to recommend a moderate fat diet 
or one that's a little bit higher in protein at the expense of carbohydrate. Also, added sugars, especially high fructose corn syrup, should be markedly reduced and limited. And then also, we know that alcohol increases triglyceride synthesis and exacerbates hypertriglyceridemia, so it's very important to you know, counsel patients about limiting alcohol consumption when their triglycerides are elevated. Yeah, it's very interesting that I, I uh, frequently can pick up who's a drinker because their HDL's high as well as their triglycerides, something I always tell the referring doctors. There's one group of patients I found that have the same syndrome who you have to be very careful not to call alcoholics, which is women on estrogen. So I don't know if you want to comment on that. Sometimes women who are taking oral estrogen who have pretty significant hypertriglyceridemia can be switched over to transdermal, correct? Yeah, and that's something that... You know, physicians have to figure out and find out about. So as you pointed out, reducing the carbohydrate load in patients with high triglycerides and weight loss and reducing things like alcohol. What about for the patient who has predominantly just elevated LDL cholesterol? Is there a different recommendation for them? For a person with high LDL cholesterol, you definitely want to target the LDL cholesterol. And, you know, in addition to TLC, that decreases saturated fat, what you want to do also, for a person who has high triglycerides, to lower the saturated fat, incorporating 10 to 25 grams of viscous fiber and 2 to 3 grams of sterols and stanols every day in the diet will you know, lower LDL cholesterol appreciably. So, Penny, you know, there's been a debate about because some atheromas have found plant sterols within them. And, of course, we know a little bit about beta-cytosterolemia leading to atherosclerosis. Some people have this feeling that maybe we should recommend stanols over sterols. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is there any data on whether stanols are better than sterols? Or, in your mind, either one is interchangeable? Well, right now, you know, current recommendations are for either one. We know that stanols aren't absorbed as much as sterols are. And the big concern, as you noted, is for patients with cytosterolemia. And for those people, clearly, you know, really, you don't want either one. We know that cytosterolemia is pretty rare, but I'm sure that the physicians are seeing it in some of their practices. So I think it's just important to make sure you make the appropriate diagnosis and then make sure that your patients avoid both sterols and stanols. So for those people who are not lipid geeks like you and I, can you give them some examples of what you mean by stanols and sterols? What kind of products would they recommend that are out there in the marketplace? And then explain what TLC is. Okay. One of the main deliveries, food sources of sterols and stanols is margarine. And there are special margarines on the market that have stanols or sterols incorporated. And then there are supplements if patients don't want to use margarines. There are some juices out there that have sterols in them. So you just have to kind of encourage your patients to look in the marketplace for products that do contain fortified sterols. So these would be things like Benacol, margarine, take control, a lot of these different things. And, and Promise Active is yeah. another one. And I know online you can get the chews from some of these companies that actually are like candies that don't require them to put it on a lot of bread, which is a, a problem, right, if you want to reduce their carbohydrates. That's right. Benacol has a chew that people can take. Great. Okay, so describe TLC to us a little bit, and then I'm going to press you about diets for beyond cholesterol, for example, diets for the patient with the hypertension. The TLC diet 
you know, is one that is low in saturated fat. It has less than 7% of calories from saturated fat. Current American diet contains around 11% calories from saturated fat. So going down to less than 7% is, you know, a big decrease for many people. It's also a diet that's lower in dietary cholesterol, less than 200 milligrams a day. And a lot of women are actually consuming a low cholesterol diet. For the average man in the U.S., they're consuming about 350 or so milligrams of cholesterol a day. So that's a cut for them. But then, you know, the fiber and sterols and stanols, in terms of, you know, a food-based approach, this is a diet that's high in fruits and vegetables, low-fat dairy products, whole grains, and lean protein sources. And then also liquid vegetable oils should be a part of the TLC to achieve you know, a moderate fat diet. We don't want to go too low in total fat, nor do we want to go too high. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Lipid Luminations on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Brown. And joining me to discuss personalization of the diet in patients to improve their cardiovascular health is Dr. Penny Chris Etherton, Distinguished Professor of Nutrition in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at Penn State University. So, Penny, there's been some recent controversy about whether olive oil is good for you or bad for you. Maybe it changes to cholesterol oleate and LDL particles. And what do you think? Do you think we should be moving back towards polyunsaturated vegetable oils, or should we be sticking with uh, monosaturated oils? That's a real good question. And, you know, it has nutritionists, I think, wringing their hands about what we should be recommending. The U.S. Dietary Guidelines 2010 have recommended that unsaturated fats replace saturated fat. And that could be either from food sources high in monos or food sources high in polys. And so when you look at the evidence showing that monos may be bad or are in fact bad, a lot of it comes from animal studies or there is some from epidemiologic data. In terms of the epidemiologic data, we have some studies that show that monos are cardioprotective and some studies that show that monos are not cardioprotective. I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is that in the U.S. diet, the major source of monounsaturated fat is fatty red meats. So we want people to eat less fatty red meat and, in fact, eat lean protein sources, including lean red meat is okay as long as, you know, people don't overdo it. And I think the jury's still out. What I like to recommend is that people use both. And if they like olive oil, fine. Olive oil and canola oil, they're both high in monounsaturated fats. There are a lot of oils that are in the marketplace right now that are higher in monos because it helps with the shelf life and increases it by at least three months. And they're higher in monos at the expense of polys. So you'll see some high soybean oil, high sunflower oil, high safflower oil that are all higher in monounsaturated fats compared to the way they used to be in the past. Patients should also include some high polyunsaturated fat oils in their diet as well. So use both. Don't just focus on one exclusively. And I do know some people just do everything in olive oil. And I would like them to eat more soybean oil. Safflower oil is another one, but the ones that are not high in monounsaturated fat, those that are high in polys. So great. So let's, in the few minutes we have left, can we talk a little bit about if someone is 
particularly working on weight loss, whether they have metabolic syndrome or hypertension and you're trying to get their weight down, what are the key components of the diet for weight reduction? There are a lot of different diets, weight loss diets that people can choose. They just have to find one that they like, the one that works for them, and then they have to stick with it. So there are a lot of different options. And Drs. Sachs and Bray tested different macronutrient profiles. So, you know, low fat, moderate fat, higher protein, carb controlled, they all can work. And the main common component is calorie reduction, right? That's it, exactly. And so along those lines, you know, some people are very successful with weight loss diets that just, you know, decrease the amount of food across the board that they eat. Just eat smaller portions and less food, you're going to cut calories and lose weight that way too. And some people prefer that approach. Another thing that nutritionists are recommending is that we cut sofas. And sofas are solid fats and added sugars. You know, the typical American consumes 37% of their calories from sofas. And so what a great target for reducing calories. You know, all those extra empty calories out there. And then another diet approach that has been shown to be effective, at least in the short term, is to decrease the energy density of the diet. And, you know, if we start cutting all those excess energy-dense calories like solid fats and replace them with fruits and vegetables that will lower the energy density of the diet, it's a great way overall to cut calories but not really significantly cut the mass of food that people eat. And in fact, people have said to us, you know, I just don't eat this much food. And in fact, they really were cutting their calories a lot, but giving them more healthy foods and, you know, helping them lose weight that way. Fantastic. So there's a lot of truth to the statement that 90% of losing weight is calorie restriction and 90% of maintaining it after you've lost it is exercise. I try to encourage my patients not to think they can just go to the gym and lose weight because a couple of cookies make up for their 45 minutes at the gym. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. And the Weight Control Registry has shown that people who have been very successful in losing weight and keeping it off participate in a lot of daily exercise consistently. So I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Penny Chris Atherton, Distinguished Professor of Nutrition in the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the Pennsylvania State University. Penny, thank you very much for joining us on Lipid Luminations today and for your insights on the dietary management of our patients. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to Lipid Luminations presented by the National Lipid Association. For more information, visit www.lipid.org.